you know, if I think of my own personal trading system, because I'm running a fully automated system, I spend very little time doing it because I'm just using price data. I have automatic filters in place to catch bad prices. I spend about maybe five minutes per month per market. So, you know, if I had a thousand markets, then it would become a full-time job and I would be quite a boring full-time job as well. Um, I wouldn't be, be interested in, in doing that, but I could easily trade, you know, a hundred futures markets or a hundred, there's, there's probably about 150 really liquid futures markets out there in the world. Um, and if I had enough money, I'd quite happily trade all of them because even if the last market I had only adds a few basis points, is that worth five minutes of my time a month? Yes, it is. And that's my own personal trade-off. So. Before we find out who's on today's show, I want to mention that today's podcast is brought to you by Eurex. And in today's conversation, I actually learn about a brand new contract from my guest that Eurex have just launched, which my guest finds to be very useful for many investors and which you can find out much more about by visiting the Eurex website. Today I'm talking to Robert Carver, who's both an author and a trader, and who spent a good chunk of his career at one of the biggest European systematic trading firms, namely AHL, before leaving in 2013 to write his newly released book. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. These two things have something in common, yet they seem to be received very differently. Um, it, yes, it is an interesting problem because you're right. People have a strong preference for trading systems that, that um, generally make money every month. Yeah. Uh, but every now and then lose lose a lot of money, mm. which is the exact opposite to trend following. Um, and I think I can I have a lot of um, a lot a lot of emotional kind of uh, bonding with these people. I, I feel like you know I really understand their pain because sure. um, I, one you know when I look at the returns to my own system, inevitably if I'm in a, a drawdown, I feel more unhappy than if if it's doing well sure um and if i've had a, a day when i've lost money even though i know from an intellectual perspective that this is just a random number you know, yeah. drawn from some unknown distribution of returns that i hope has a positive mean um you know when i have a down day i, I feel slightly less happy than if i have an up day and if i if i had an up day every day for six months then i'd be much happier <laughs> and uh, you know so i have a lot of sympathy for for that point of view um i think the the, re, the sort of reason for the dichotomy between um, this emotional response and the emotional response to buying lottery tickets is to do with the the the, the size of the pain and the size of the payoff. Right. So, um, you know, if you've invested all of your money into a into a trend following fund, um, and um, you know you, you you lose money for two thirds, let's take an extreme example. You know, two two out of every three days you're losing money. Right. You could be losing. You know maybe half a percent of your net worth two out of three days. Sure. Um, whereas no one's probably going to buy that many lottery tickets. Um, <laughs> if I was to buy enough lottery tickets that it would represent half a percent of my net worth, that would be sure. you know, quite a few lottery tickets. Um, so the, the, the size of the loss that we get when we buy a lottery ticket is, is sufficiently small that it, it doesn't bother us. Um, now, you know, if, I, if I've got this trend following system, it might be that 
if I have an exceptional month, I might make 20%. Yeah. Um, so if you look at, say, September 2008, then, you know, the, 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 the big CTAs were making a, that kind of, say, 20 or 40%, depending sure. on their VAR target. Sure. Um, now, 20% of my wealth is, is good. Don't get me wrong. If you yeah. send me a check with that tomorrow, I'd be happy. Sure. Um, but it's also a lot less than I'd get if I won a lottery. Yeah. Um, which would be, you know, depending on the, the payout, many, many times my wealth. So uh, I think that's the reason the, the, the size of the, the gain and the size of the loss kind sure. of skews our perception, um, sure. makes one thing seem more attractive than the other. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now let's talk about risk. And as uh, Donald Rumsfeld said, uh, the, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, what do we need to know about predictable and unpredictable risk in your opinion? So the, the main thing to bear in mind is that the, the, the risk has these two components, predictable and unpredictable. Um, and the, the, the problem starts if you start to assume that there is no unpredictable risk, or at least you ignore it or you forget about it. Mm. Um, and, you know, Nassim Tal never spent the last 30 years writing books to, to make sure that we don't forget about it. Um, but, um, you know, the, most of the time when we're trading, we have some model of how we think returns appear, um, you know, as, 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 um, which can be um, usually pretty simple. And you usually say, okay, I think returns are going to have the following standard deviation and they're going to have the following correlation structure. Mm. And that implies that, you know, you'll get um, returns coming um, day after day, you know, you can have a certain chance of a, of a loss of such magnitude and a certain chance of a gain of such a magnitude and so on. Um, now, that is fine. And you, you, you can't really run a trading system unless you do have some way of modeling what your returns are going to be. Um, and you can make that more sophisticated and more realistic. So you can add in you know, what, what um, the, the quanti guys would call higher moments. So you could add in skew and kurtosis, mm -hmm. which means, you know, you, you instead of having a classic bell-shaped curve of returns, you, you have more funky returns, which are more realistic um, for real asset markets. Sure. Um, um, and you can also do things in the correlation space. So you can have things like co-skewness and all these, you know, fancy things. Um, now, um, that's fine. The problem is the more of these, the more fancy you make your risk model, um, the more calibration you need to do. And um, I think you you mentally then assume that, that you're, you must be capturing more of the expected risk, that the amount of unexpected risk left is smaller, which um, I think is what happened really in the financial crisis when, you know, we had these models of CDO prices, uh -huh. um, which were fairly sophisticated, um, certainly much more complicated than, than anything I could understand. But because they were sophisticated enough that people kind of assumed that they must be encapsulating the, the, the real world risk entirely, when of course they weren't. And there was this huge tranche of, um, pun intended, <laughs> this huge tranche of, of risk out there which um, wasn't captured in the model. So my, my approach is to use the, you know, the, really, the most simple risk model you can, which it has no you know, no high moments, just standard deviation, just correlation, and then to know, mentally know that, that I am exposed to um, getting these things wrong. Right. Um, and then what I do in my own trading system is I do relatively simple things like say, well, you know, what if my model for correlations is completely wrong and actually 
all correlations are going to be either one or minus one, whichever is worse for the position I have on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that basis, how much am I likely to lose? Um, and then I, I kind of cap that exposure. At, um, and if, if, you know, if my exposure goes beyond that, then I will actually automatically cut my position. So, um, you know, it's, I, generally speaking, is hopefully you're understanding. Um, I like things that are simple that I sure. can understand, sure. but also sure. are robust. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the way that I model and handle risk is, is, is exactly that way. So I do think if you've got a simple risk model, then you're, you're never going to forget that it is a simple risk model and you're never going to put too much um, confidence into the assumptions that it's making. Sure, sure, sure. I have a few more questions uh, relating to, to the book and then I'm going to try and, and sort of um, seam, seamlessly Uh, transition into some of my usual questions uh, so we'll, we'll see how that goes but you touch very early on in our conversation you touched upon the importance uh, of the and I can't remember the word you use but it's essentially the management of your position so it's partly the position sizing but it's also how that position size stays uh, whether it's constant or whether it's changing along with the the trade Talk to me about why this framework is is so important. Um, because you were actually saying that if you get this part right, then the actual entry point is not so important. And I, and 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 for me at least, I would say that I think a lot of these systematic trading strategies, to a large extent, certainly if they're longer term trend following strategies, they tend to get into the same trades at the same time. Give a give a you know plus minus a few days or whatever but what sets one manager apart from the other is really one to your point how they manage the risk along the trend uh, and and the other thing is of course the exit um, but let's take one 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 at a time let's talk about sort of the 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 the, the, the sizing and the, the management of the position um, because I think again this is something a lot of people may not Uh, see as 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 important as 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 you uh, rightly put it. So, the I think the problem is that people um, wrap up a number of different things together at the yeah. same time. So, um, you know, if you read um, a lot of trading systems that are out there, they they often say, for example, you know, you should never bet more than a certain percentage of your capital on a particular trade, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know, they then say, or oh, you should always. You know, then you should own and uh, never buy more than a certain number of futures contracts, assuming you have a certain amount of money. Right. Um, and th- this is kind of confounding um, different things that should be separated. Um, so let's take um, stop losses because it's something that most people sure. un- understand. Sure. Sure. Um, so the kind of big question is how should you set your stop loss? So um, if you actually follow the logic of, of the way that these systems are written, um, what you should your stop loss will be different depending on how much money you have. Because if you're um, if you're a small trader, you'll only be able to afford a very tight stop. Uh-huh. If you've got more money, then you know two or three percent of your capital will be a much larger amount of money and you can have a bigger stop. Um, but the the market doesn't actually know how much money you have and doesn't care. Um, the, the the price is going to move around the way it moves around and In practice, what that will mean is that the smaller trader will get stopped out earlier, and the the bigger trader will get stopped out later. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that means then is that the the smaller trader will tend to have to trade more frequently than the bigger trader. 
Um, but the point um, I make um, in my book is that um, the amount of volatility in the market and the correct holding period in a market are absolutely nothing to do with how much capital you have. So the, these two guys shouldn't should actually be trading the market in exactly the same way. Um, and what that means in practice is you should calculate your stop loss based on how volatile the market is. So if the market is more volatile, then you need a wider stop. Um, and secondly, on on how long you want to hold that position for, because um, you know the wider your stop is, the the longer you'll spend in that position. Um, and uh, you know if the market is expensive to trade, then that that you know you probably want to have a wider stop. And if it's cheap to trade and you, you can afford to hold positions for less time, in which case you can have a tighter stop. The point is that at no time in that calculation are you considering how much money you have. Mm. Um, and then the, the next step then is to say, well, how big should my positions should my positions be? And it's at this point you then bring in you know, how, much, how much capital you've actually got and how much risk you want to take on that capital. Mm. Um, and then you know how much risk you should take on that capital is actually... You actually you know, it's not a, a simple question. It's actually about, I think I list about eight different things you should consider mm-hmm. when deciding, you know, how much risk you should you should have in your capital. It's not just what your appetite for risk is. It's also how profitable you expect your system to be. Sure. It depends on what kind of system you're running. So a, a divergent system can be run at a higher risk than a convergent system, for example, because of the the, the properties of the, the skew of the returns. Sure. Um, so a good... The point about um, these, the sort of the way I like to do things is, is very much about kind of taking separately what the components of a trading system should be, and then individually saying, well, you know, what should be considered when making this decision, and and then kind of moving on to the next step and saying, well, now we we know how big our stop loss is, you know, what how should we then decide how big our position should be? So mm. you've got to separate these things out and and um, calculate them correctly. And that's something that's usually done um, in uh, in institutional setups pretty well, mm-hmm. although maybe not in the same way or as explicitly. Um, but um, you know, if, if you're talking about a retail traders, then um, very few of them um, will be using systems that have been set up in in, in this way. Sure. And and in your experience. Um I mean, do you look at at, at, at at trades on a trade by trade basis, meaning that you uh, have specific stop losses for for each trade, or do you combine? Because you also talk about combining, you know, signals together, and in order to get different, you know, strengths of of, of, of a signal. Um, and so, in some cases, uh, obviously, the the other way of doing it is to say, well, actually, we. We can either manage to risk by having a stop that takes us out at a particular point, but we could also manage the risk of having certain different entry points and exit points that essentially changes the the signal, um, you know, from long to short or short to, to long, and that's going to be how we get out of a trade. Do, do you have a do you have an opinion or, or a favorite of those two kind of ways of doing it? So, in my own system, I use the latter. So right. I call this. Um, in, I like to call this continuous trading system. So yeah. you never have a, a discrete position. And if anyone ever says to me, "Oh, you know, what's your target stop loss on this trade?" I'll, I, I get confused because I don't really know how to answer that question. Yeah. Because yeah. the concept of a, a trade doesn't really exist. I just have a target position, which um, is, is implied from the forecasts I have um, for the price. Sure. And then if if the if the target position changes, then I trade, and that. At some point, will take me from from being long to being flat to being short, 
and then you know the implicit trade is closed but that's not how i think at all mm. um but i do discuss um under the heading of the semi-automatic trader the alternative approach which is what i would call the discrete um position management where essentially you have discrete trades um and you you kind of put them on and then you you don't take them off until you've hit the stop loss right um and this approach is is um better in circumstances where you don't have systematic trading rules because by by saying to the trader right once you put a trade on it's not coming off unless you hit the stop loss you're kind of binding them into that that contract mm. um, and thereby forcing them to to manage the risk and the profitability of a position in a way that's that's correct mm. um, if you said to them well you know you, you can you can take the trade off when you feel like it um, then you know there's a risk that they'll they'll do the wrong thing and trade in a way that's essentially going to break the the kind of very carefully set up systematic framework that they've put themselves into. Sure. Um, the other circumstances in which that makes more sense are, for example, if you're trading a system where you're mostly buying options, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you're probably going to just want to buy the option. Um, and uh, if you're going to buy out of the money options, then, you know, you pay your premium and that's your maximum loss. So you don't really have a stop loss exactly, but you do have a discrete position where you you know you bought an option, you hope sure. it pays off, you've got a maximum loss, you don't need to to worry about trading out of it. Um, and uh, the other reason why discrete positions work better if you've got a, a non-systematic way of uh, looking at trades is um, it's just easier. Um, mm. You know, if you if you've got to look at a uh, hundred positions every day and evaluate whether you should be in or out of them manually you know by looking at charts or fundamental data or whatever it is you're doing um, then that's obviously you know quite a lot of work and it's much much easier if you if you've got this very simple binary concept whether you're in the trade or you're out of the trade sure um you mentioned earlier on that a lot of uh, professional managers in this space they would often have a volatility target of their portfolio say 15 percent or could be 20 percent doesn't really matter and they will target that on a on a on a kind of a daily basis uh, adjusting their portfolio accordingly but i just wonder isn't that like driving 100 miles an hour regardless of whether you're on a motorway or in the mountains or in a city so to speak always having the same target of volatility of your portfolio um, wouldn't it be um, better if you could kind of adjust the uh, target Uh, depending on the conditions or if we're back to the racing uh, um, analogy, you know, whether you're driving in, in you know, on a, on a track or whether you're driving in, in a city, so to speak. Um, so I m- must have explained myself badly because that's not what most of these managers do at all. Okay. They do the, the target. Let's say that the the target is 50 miles an hour to yeah. keep with your yeah. analogy. That's a, a target they expect to achieve on average over a period of, Potentially years. Okay. Um, you know they wouldn't expect to achieve it um, every day, or perhaps even every, assuming you know they're trading reasonably slowly, or even every month, and they might not even achieve it over any given year. Um, and uh, the, the the speed or the, the amount of risk you actually run is going to be driven by how much confidence you have in your your forecast. So if your forecasts aren't very strong, then you perhaps just drive at 10 miles an hour. Sure. Um, and if, but on the other hand, if if all you know all the lights are flashing green and saying, you know, this is a really strong forecast and this market's going to the moon or to the ground, depending on which side you're on, then you drive at 100 miles an hour. 
Um, you would normally have a speed limit in place. Right. Um, so in my own system, my, my speed limit is 100 miles an hour mm-hmm. in the sense that I, I would never take, I never have an expected um, known risk of more than twice my long run average target. Um, but, um, you know, I, I could go down potentially to 10 or 15%. Okay. And that's on the whole portfolio, sure. um, which obviously is made up of a number of different um, instruments. And on any given instrument, you know, you may well have almost no risk or no risk at all. Sure. Um, if, if there's literally no no information out there telling you what your position should be. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. Um, now, there are, there are managers um, in different parts of the quantitative space who do have fixed risk targets. So it's, it's more common in the, like the equity long short space, for example. Right, right. Um, so those guys generally are always tra- driving at 50 miles an hour. Okay. And okay. The, the problem with that is um, if, if you get into a situation where potential returns are compressed, um, so the classic case would be going into 2007, um, you cast your minds back. Um, mm. There's a situation in which a lot of quantitative equity long short managers all had essentially the same positions on, yeah. uh, and the amount of um, juice in those positions was seriously reduced. And um, you know they were making just a few basis points and quite high leverage. And then uh, there was a couple of bad days in August uh, 2007 when you know everything went against them at the same time. Um, and that is the that is the danger of running a, a fixed um, risk target. Now let's uh, let's try and make that uh, transition a little bit and jump into something that uh, I would normally ask my guests about. Um, let's start with organization, and, and I just want to ask you this. I mean, you've obviously spent a lot of time doing research, and you worked in 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 teams, uh, you know, at large institutions. If you today were charged with the Uh, challenge of putting together a a research team for a systematic uh, fund manager what would that look like you know and 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 do you need 50 phds or two phds how (laughs) how does that how does that all go together so there are three three considerations i would say the first is um, the size of the team okay the second is the as you've touched on me the kind of educational attainment or general level of intelligence if you like the team sure, sure. and the third is the the diversity of um opinions and, and backgrounds mm. so team size um i i do have to say that i think that the the large numbers of um researchers employed by many institutions um are unnecessary and indeed could be potentially damaging okay um so Generally speaking, um, you know, if you if you're designing a, a systematic trading system and, and not one that's going to need to be adapted regularly, as we've sure. already discussed, sure. um, you you know, it's like building a building. You know, you hire a bunch of people to design the system, and then really, once the building is up, you're just going to need a few a few building maintenance guys to you know to make sure the lift is working. And uh, <laughs> and uh, similarly, you, you're probably not going to need. Once the uh, the system is designed and working, you're probably not going to need 50 people. Sure. Um, depending on the size of the fund and the complexity of what you're doing, um, I mean, if we're talking about, say, uh, a CTA with, um, say, high $100 million sure. FOM, yeah. then I would say a, a team of kind of um, half a dozen sure. uh, people is probably sufficient. Sure. 
Um, second is on on intellect and educational attainment. So, sure. um, so I should state up front first. I, I have no PhD, and uh, <laughs> although I, I try not to to let it influence my thinking, it may well be that I have an unconscious bias against people with PhDs. Okay. <laughs> um, but what I, I will say is, I have worked with some incredibly smart people. Yeah. Um, people who are you know many many times smarter than I am, um, and um, it's I think it's fair to say that. If we've got six people, if, if we have six kind of super genius people in a team, then it's probably going to be quite dysfunctional mm. um, for a number of reasons. So um, I think, uh, you know, you, you do want smart people, but but you don't, I don't think there's necessarily a positive correlation between how smart people are or how many degrees they've got beyond a certain point. I mean, you, you don't want some guy who's maybe very bright, but has no, doesn't have the right kind of, uh, you know, mathematical background to cope with. Mm. sort of stuff we have to deal with but mm. um that doesn't mean that everyone has to have a phd in statistics or, or economics or, or physics or whatever um so um i'd like you know i think uh you know sort of people who are clever but uh, not you know not necessarily a team of, of geniuses because geniuses are quite hard to to manage and uh you know if everyone on the team is a genius then you know who's going to do the dirty work I seem to remember a firm back in 1998 that was probably a team of geniuses and, uh, a, few, uh, yes. and a few Nobel yes. Prize winners as uh, well. <laughs> I think, I can't remember the name of the firm, but it was long-term something, something management. Right. Yeah. 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 So uh, that, that's that's an interesting uh, example, perhaps. Sure. Uh, and finally, in terms of the, the, the kind of um, backgrounds of the people, so... Um, If I look at AHL, for example, sure. um, you know, if, if you go back to the, the early 90s, I think pretty much everyone I hired um, had a, a degree in um, physics from Oxford or Cambridge. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, so you had a lot of people who, who really thought in exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, there are probably a lot of hedge funds out there staffed exclusively with people who've been to the University of Chicago, <laughs> you know, with, with a kind of um, Eugene Farmer Right. doctrine hammered into their heads um and um the, the problem with having a lot of people who all think in exactly the same way is um you know you, you kind of you've got the old story is if you've got six people in the room and six of them have got the same opinion and five of them are a waste of space right um i do think you need a diversity of backgrounds and one of the interesting things about the business of systematic trading is it does bring together a lot of different um skills and, and you know you need people who know about IT and computing you need, you need people who know about economics mm. you need people who know about how financial markets actually work and who ideally have had some trading experience um, you know you need people who have got that kind of a statistical ability um, um, so um, you, you do need people with a range of backgrounds and it's unusual to find people who do combine those and I've already said I'm a rare exception but <laughs> That just means in practice that I'm I'm sort of not too bad at a number of things rather than being brilliant at any of them. Sure. Um, but um, I think uh, in this business, it, it, it's better to have a team of people from those different backgrounds who are going to think differently and and not just follow the same train of thought and um, and, and be exactly the same. Sure. Um, th there's been a lot written about you know things like herding behavior, and you don't want herding behavior in your team. You don't everyone coalescing around the same opinion. No. I mean, see, I mean, I agree with what you say, but but it is interesting that uh, there is still a preference, I think, from many institutional investors to go with the firms with the larger 
teams, uh, although there is nothing to suggest in the performance data that, uh, you know, 50 PhDs is better than, than one, so to speak. Um, but you, obviously there are some other things that you do when when you have large teams. You usually also have to accommodate uh, managing and executing large amount of money, and, and, and that takes research as well, so for, for sure. Now, I want to ask you a little bit about track records, um, you know, how investors uh, should read them because not everyone has a 20, 30 or 40 year track record. Um, and, and, um, and, and even if you have a 30 or 40 year track record, the system will have changed over time. People uh, make changes. That's why they have research teams. And, and on one side, investors want you to be innovative. But on the other hand, if you say you make changes, hmm, they don't necessarily like that either. So how do we... How do we put all of that together and, and how should investors deal with historical track records? So the, the biggest problem we have when looking at historical track records is, is this issue of statistical uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So it's exactly the same problem that we have as researchers when looking at a backtest. Right. We don't know whether this apparently really good backtest or really bad backtest is just, a, you know, just bad luck and good luck. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know it's the same problem that investors have um, and one of the things um, I like to do is actually plot the evolution of the estimates of um, portfolio means and correlations over time and, and um, you know even with 10, 20, 30 years of data um, you know you, you're never in a, really in a situation where you, you have a, a significant difference between two portfolios which actually are quite in you know long run would be quite different um, so then that really hammers home to me the, the difficulty of, of this of this job. So um, I would look at it I personally, you know, if I was running a, a fund of funds business, sure, sure. Um, then, you know, I would look at track records, but I probably wouldn't put a huge amount of effort into analyzing them to death. I mean, I do think, um, you know, if you're in a fund of funds business and you employ a, a smart researcher, the, the first thing the smart researcher will do is, is you know, take the, the 20 years of 12 month returns and do all kinds of amazing statistical analysis with them, which, you know, can be, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think you can go over the top with these things. I mean, I think I remember seeing once a presentation by someone in a fund of funds business who'd analyzed a track record of three managers over 10 years. And there were actually more slides than data points, <laughs> um, which, you know, is probably going a bit far. Sure. Um, but, but the basic things to do, I mean, look at the track record and it should be similar to to the track record of people who are supposedly doing the same thing. Mm. So you know if you if you go, if the guy is trend following, and he lost money last year, then you you should kind of have a big question mark. Right. That might mean that that he's really bad, or it might mean that he's not trend following at all and he's doing something else. Sure. Um, you know if if the guy um, did really well between 2011 and 2013 when trend following did badly, then then again you you should be saying well. Is, he, is that due to exceptional skill or is that because he's doing something quite different from, from all the other trend followers and maybe he's actually exposed to, a, to some kind of risk? Mm, yeah. um, you know, I would, if, a, if someone's performance was like really, really bad or really, really good, so, you know, well outside the, the distribution of what I'd expect, then I'd probably dismiss them, um, both, both for being really good and really bad. So, you know, if someone comes to me and they've, they've got a 20-year track record and they're doing... Um, trend following of futures with an average holding period of, of a month and their sharp ratio is three, 
<laughs> I'd say, you know, you, 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 the, the, it might be that you're a genius, but to be honest, it's more likely you're the next Bernie Madoff. So right. I'm really sorry, but, you know, we're not going to invest in you. Sure, um, sure, sure. And then I would spend much more of my, you know, I, I've hired this smart research guy in the fund fund business. I'd, I'd then send him to talk to the, the, the smart researchers in, in that business and ask them questions and, and, you know, make sure that they, not ask them to give anything away, but make sure that they, they could explain, um, you know, what they were doing and what risks they felt they were exposed to. And it would be much more of a qualitative judgment for me rather than just looking purely at the track record. Sure. So I remember from uh, an e-book you helped me put together recently, you have something called Explain Your Strategy in Terms My Grandmother Would Understand It. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Now, speaking about performance a little while longer, in, system, in the systematic trading world, obviously, we have the very short-term strategies, we have the longer-term strategies, and, and, and we have all sorts of uh, other strategies that can be systematized. Often people will, you know, I, I hear the, the point about, oh, but there's too many people doing trend following, there's too many people doing short-term or high frequency, that's going to be dead because this, that, and the other. I mean, did you have an opinion about these uh, concerns that people might have with with these systematized strategies the the main considerations are um the, the the kind of size of the the systematic traders in that business versus you know everybody else um the the, the style of, of how they're trading um and you know whether the conditions are likely to change in the future so um let's take high frequency trading so mm -hmm. High frequency trading is is basically, as far as I can tell, 100% systematized. Right. Um, there is no human being who can click, um, with with some exceptions. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's there's some people who who are being prosecuted for spoofing. Right. Oh yes. Oh yes. Who, who apparently have been doing it manually, which okay. is quite interesting, um, sure. and have actually been able to take money off the high frequency traders. Uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, at the cost of doing something that that is. Um, alleged to be illegal. Um, but but generally speaking, you know, the high frequency end is 100% computers because humans just can't compete. Sure. The things that humans are good at um, are, are completely irrelevant when when the only thing that matters is the, the latency and the speed at which the, you're trading. Mm. Um, you know, these things aren't doing highly sophisticated calculations. They can't be because their main job is to turn around as fast as possible and update the orders they have in the market as new information comes in. Mm. Um, so, you know, will will that go away? Um, well, no, I think that business will remain 100% systematized. But as to who will make money in that business, I mean, at the moment, if you believe the media, then basically, the you know, it's the high frequency shops that are making the money and, and the people who are going into that market to execute, um, who, are, who are getting, who are paying effectively a tax. Right. Um, you know, and there the obviously, and I, the third part of my um, early statement was, will that market change? Well, you have things like obviously a lot of fuss in the US about this. You know, Hillary Clinton's <laughs> highlighted it as a problem. You've got IEX, which is the um, you know the exchange set up deliberately to frustrate um, HFT. You know, the, the the market will probably change, but my opinion is that there will always be high frequency firms out there. They will have to adapt, sure, and they probably will adapt. You know, the size of the profits they make may go down a bit, may go up a bit, but I, I believe that that will always be a you know a business which is profitable. That doesn't mean to say that any individual firm doing it will always be profitable or that any strategy that's working now will still work in a year's time. That's almost certainly not true. 
Mm. Now, if we go to the other end of the scale, actually, let's go somewhere in the middle of the scale. Let's okay. think about kind of medium speed relative value trading. Right. So um, let's suppose um, that, that, you know, you're, you're doing, um, I don't know, long, short equity trading. Sure. Um, so you've, you've got a bunch of um, equity factors and, you know, you're, let, let's just make it simple. Assume you've just got one factor, which is book value. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the world is much more complicated than that, but, you know, that, that doesn't change the argument. So you, you've got um, a lot of firms that are cheap. They've got, um, you know, um, high book value and a lot of firms are expensive, got low book value. So you do a long, short strategy on those and you do that in a, in a systematic way. Now, if only 5% of the people in the market are using that strategy, then that's great. You'll, you'll continue making money. Mm-hmm. But if 50 or 75 or 90% of the people in that market are using that strategy, then, you know, pretty soon um, the opportunities are going to disappear. Mm. You know, the prices of the, the firms that are cheap will be bid up. Sure. The prices of the firm that are expensive will be pushed down until they're, in, you know, in the extreme situation, they'll all be the same price. Um, so in those areas, um, the the profitability of, of, of those systems, and it's not even it's not even systematic training per se. It's it's more the profitability of that kind of investment factor. Right. Um, is cyclical. Um, so there are times when you can make a lot of money with that kind of trading, and it's normally actually after a market crash. So um, it depends on the, the kind of crack. You know, the the, the dot com tech crash back in two thousand. After that actually um, value stocks weren't that cheap because they hadn't gone up that much in the tech boom. It had been all the, uh, you know, the growth stocks that had gone up. True. Um, whereas after the, mo- in the more recent crash, you know, in, in 2009, you, you know, you could pick up a lot of um, value stocks really cheaply because um, they were the, the businesses, you know, things like um, house builders sure. um, that had really been hammered um, and therefore value investing from, you know, would have done extremely well in the two or three years out of that period. Yeah. So that, that's a cyclical business. So it won't ever go away because um, it's just that it might go away over the next few years, but then something will happen and it will come back again. And um, you can either take the view that you'll just always be in that strategy uh, over a very long period of time, or you can try and be a little bit smarter and say, well, I'll, 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 um, I'll put more money in when there's, there's more value, a bit like driving faster than 50 miles an hour. Right. You know, when, when the road is clear, if we sure. go back to the earlier analogy. Sure. Now let's take something like a slower strategy, like trend following. Mm-hmm. So the the thing about trend following is unlike a relative value strategy is that if more people follow it, it actually becomes self-reinforcing. Mm-hmm. Sure. So if, if when markets go up, there are trend followers in the market who will buy it, then the market will continue to go up. Mm. So from that point of view, having more people in the market may actually improve your returns rather than harming them. Mm. Um, the issue then comes around execution, because if you have a lot of people trading one market who are all running the same model, and then the price moves against you, they're all going to want to rush for the exits at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, there are probably futures markets out there which have quite high percentages um, of people in them who are running CTA-type strategies. Um, and, um, you know, we, we at AHL, we always made sure we were less than a certain percentage of the open interest. Sure, yeah. Sort of figure, figure I can disclose, and it's probably changed anyway. Um, but let, let's just say it was 10%. Sure. Um, it wasn't, but let's say it was. Yeah, that's fine. But if you've got 
you say you're less than 10%, but if you then have 10 large CTAs, all of whom are saying, well, we'll only be up to 10% of the open interest, all of a sudden you've got a market that is 100% CTA. Sure. You know, and they're all going to rush for the exits uh, on, a, on a correction in exactly the same way. Mm. Um, so that, you know, the, the underlying um, returns of a, of a trend-following CTA-type strategy, because it's pretty slow, because it's based on human behaviour that I think at least shouldn't change, yeah. um, will probably still be around for a long time to come. But there may well be periods when there are too many people in that strategy. It gets crowded, and um, and you know, and that will mean um, that uh, there will be these unexpected um, liquidity problems um, at times. But the, you know, in the, in the long run, it should probably be okay. Sure, which is kind of why I certainly also feel that, uh, uh, in some ways, I think the exit, um, however you do it, but I think the exit uh, is another important factor in in these strategies, at least in order to avoid being caught up in, in, in when maybe uh, a large uh, part of the, the same strategies is, uh, is going to, uh, to get out at the same time. Now, I want to uh, ask you a question that I never asked to anyone really because um, they may not be as in the, uh, uh, you know, the details as, as you clearly are. Um, and um, I just want to, you know, when you look at all of these things, is there any one statistics that you really like? You think this is this is just a great one to, you know, some people talk about sharp, some people talk about Sotino ratio, Omega ratio, all sorts of different things. I don't know. Is there something when you do your analysis that you feel, yeah, you know, this is important and I, I'm going to so put a I've, lot of emphasis I've... on that? I generally look mostly at Sharpe ratio, okay, um, and that's because it's it's relatively simple to calculate. Sure. Um, or, and, and because because I've generally looked at Sharpe ratio for, you know, the best part of ten years, um, I have a very strong intuition as to what is a good Sharpe ratio, you know, what is a bad Sharpe ratio, mm. um, and um, you know. Um, now the disadvantage of Sharpe ratio is obviously it assumes a symmetric. Sure. Returns and um, for that reason, the other thing I will look at is skew. Okay. Um, so, positive skew means that generally speaking, you have more losing days than winning days, but your winning days are bigger. So that's yeah. very much like a trend-following strategy. Yeah. A negative skew means that you, you're making money more days than not, but when you you have a loss, it's a big loss, and that would be something like a relative value um, strategy or perhaps a, a carry strategy. Sure. Um, so the the problem with with skew is that um, without getting into technicalities, but the, the 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 higher up you go in the distribution, the more moments you calculate, the more unreliable the statistics are, and the more they can be distorted by um, just one or two data points. Mm. And one thing I'm very aware of um, is with a lot of uh, negative skew strategies is that they may not have had their big down day in the back test. Right. Um, which you know economists call the peso problem, um, going back to the Mexican peso sure. crisis in the sure. 1980s. Um, so I'm very suspicious of a strategy that has a high sharp, makes money more days than than doesn't make yeah. money, yeah. but then has never had a big loss, because I I'm always thinking, well, this thing must be exposed to a a risk, um, which is out there. Um, and if you know, if I was in this hypothetical situation where I was working for a fund of funds organization, I would go to the managers and say, right, you know, what keeps you awake at night? What's what's the big risk you're exposed to? What can go wrong? Mm. And if the guys just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, oh, nothing, it's it's wonderful, then I will I won't invest in them because mm. 
you know, they they clearly, you know, if they can, but if they can articulate and say, well, yes, this looks amazing and the back test looks amazing, but mm. we know for a fact that we are exposed to this particular risk, mm. but we've quantified it and we, yeah. you know, we think that we might have a 20% down year if it happens. Um, and, you know, then I might actually be happy enough to invest in, in that strategy. I'm going to give you a challenge, Rob, because I have so many more questions and I know we can't get uh, to all of them. So the whole next section, which is where I wanted to talk about your own trading strategy, I'm going to formulate it, or at least I'm going to try to, to into one question. Okay. <laughs> and that is taking everything you've done, the research, your writing, and, and all of that, how have you ended up from a sort of 30,000 feet point of view and maybe a little bit lower than that how have you ended up with your own trading system what does it look like today okay so um i trade about 40 futures markets mm-hmm. and they trade they're spread over the all the main asset classes and as i said earlier you you have to be diversified uh, in this game diversification diversification really is the only free lunch in finance mm. so um and I, i've got a, a good spread of assets and geographies sure if I had more capital, I'd have more markets. Sure. Um, it, you know, the, it's as simple as that. But how um, many? But just on that point, but how many more? Because I think that's a big discussion as well. Because I find that certainly uh, in some of the studies that I've seen and been part of, there is a number of where you don't really get any more diversification benefit. And and so people who trade two hundred markets, they do it because they need capacity. They don't do it because they need more diversification. But I don't know what that number is. Whether it's sixty markets or whether it's seventy or eighty, I don't know. What what's you, what, where would you like to go in terms of number of markets? Well, theoretically, there is always a benefit to adding another market, sure. which isn't one hundred percent correlated. Sure. Now the question is, what is the cost of adding that market? Yeah. So if I go back to my institutional experience at AHL, one of the things um, I did while I was there was add a lot more markets to the system, mostly OTC uh, interest rate swaps and credit derivatives. And, um, you know, one day the the COO called me into his office and said, uh, you know, you've added all these markets, you know, what's the, um, you know, is this really necessary? And I said, well, if you can tell me what the cost is of each of these markets, then I can say, you know, whether I think it's worth it or not, because it might be that the last market we added was a tiny, tiny fraction of the portfolio um, and added only, you know, one basis point to our performance. Mm. One basis point on, you know, $10 billion is still, sure. it's still I, I can't work it out in my head. Sure. <laughs> and now, but if, if the cost of adding that market in terms of operational costs or back office costs or whatever, um, you know, it exceeds that one basis point, then yes, I agree, it's, it's been a bad trade. Mm. Um, in the end, uh, we, we discussed it and decided that I was right. Um, but, um, in, you know, if I think of my own personal trading system, if I had a market, because I'm running a fully automated system, I spend very little time doing it because I'm just using price data. I have automatic um, filters in place to catch bad prices. Um, I spend about maybe um, five minutes per month per market. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if I had a thousand markets, then it would become a full-time job and I wouldn't be, be quite a boring full-time job as well. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be, be interested in, in doing that, but sure. I could easily trade, you know, a hundred futures markets or a hundred, there's, there's probably about 150 really liquid futures markets out there in the world. Okay. Um, and if I had enough money, I'd quite happily trade all of them because, 
even if the last market I had only adds a few basis points, is that sure. worth five minutes of my time a month? Yes, it sure. is, and that's my own personal trade-off. So sure. So you got forty. You got forty markets at the moment. Tell me about sort of the number of different strategies and models that you decided upon in your own, and 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 what kind of style did you end up become? You know, what kind of style trader did you end up becoming? So everyone listening to this so far has probably con- concluded that I, you know, <laughs> I'm obsessed with trend following, and my system would be 100% trend following. So I'll now disappoint you and tell that you my system is only 40% trend following. <laughs> um, the and uh, it's it's also um, you know I'm not just doing the I'm doing a few different ways of doing that trend following, which are all fairly highly correlated correlated with each other, but just adds a bit of variety. Sure. Um, then I have a chunk of of carry a carry system. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be looking at the slope of the yield curve and looking at the the roll down and the the, the contango. Um, and is that both in in yields and and uh, or commodities or mainly in commodities where there seems to be? It's it's across the board. So okay. one one thing I concluded is there's not really enough evidence to say that different systems work much better in in different asset classes than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean there are some exceptions. So it does seem, for example, that trade trading trend following relatively quickly doesn't seem to work as well in equity indices as in other markets mm-hmm. and the same and that then finding follows through down into individual equities as well mm-hmm. um and uh, actually um andreas Plonow has a nice um piece on his blog about this quite Ab- recently. yeah absolutely i saw that um and um you know but but on the other hand if i actually look and be really statistically rigorous and say is there enough statistical evidence in the back test to say I should run a different system with S and P five hundred futures as with US ten year bonds. I don't see that, so I, I take the, the the simple approach of running exactly the same system in every market, with the caveat that I do adjust for the expected trading cost of the market, and therefore, you know, on, on a really cheap market like like Nasdaq or S and P five hundred, I will be trading more quickly than on something like. Um, Australian interest rate futures, which is a relatively expensive market. I have a, a systematic short bias on on the two volatility mm-hmm. um, um, index markets I trade, which sure. is the VIX and the European equivalent, the V2X. Um, and that's because, you know, I believe that being short the the you know the, the implied versus realised vol premium is a is, is a kind of source of return, and uh, ideally I'd have a you know, there's systems you can build that capture that more efficiently. But but the in my current trading space, the simplest way of doing that is just to have this little short bias in those two markets. How much would of the overall overall risk would you allocate to that kind of strategy? Um, it's I think it from I need is about five between five and ten percent. I can't okay. remember exactly. It's not a lot because that, no, that no. obviously is pretty. That that's the dark real dark right. side when it comes to risk <laughs> properties. Um, you know, these things have four times the skew of. Of the of the equity markets they track, and sure. um, if something like two thousand and eight happened again, it'd be <laughs> would be pretty dangerous. But because I'm also running a trend following and a carry system right. in market, yeah, sure. If things really went badly, I'd be out of the position. So it's not not too much of a concern. No, no. In um, in trend following, at least uh, my experience is that there is uh, a disproportionate part of the profits in in long term trend following that is being made from the long side of the trend of the trades um have you looked at that and and if so um do you adjust for that fact 
I mean, again, it comes down to statistics. So part of the problem is, especially in the financial markets, so, you know, the, the bonds, the equities, the mm-hmm. um, interest rate futures, uh, the, there has been this massive, long secular trend of the last 30 years, which you touched on earlier. Sure. Um, which means there isn't really that many times when, when you know, the market's going down. Um, so it's really hard to know um, if, if we had a, a less unbiased data set where there were roughly the same amount of bear and bull markets, then we could probably be able to make that decision a bit, a bit more, um, a bit more easily. And, and and you can try quite clever things like trying to adjust the history of the past to um, remove this secular trend and then refitting your system. And and uh, you know you kind of get this this result coming through, but but again. I, I've become a lot more um, rigorous in my old age. So when I was younger, I, I used to, if I saw something that looked good in a back test, I'd, I'd immediately put it in. But but now my my bias is towards doing nothing sure. and keeping things as simple as possible and the same across the board. And so I need really strong evidence to suggest that what you said was true to actually put that into my system. And there's definitely something there, but it you know, unfortunately, because we've got this bias, sure. um, it's rare that you, you'll see a, a statistically significant difference between those two environments. Sure. I have a little bit of a cheeky question. hope you don't mind. You've been running your system for, for, for a while now. Um, no, no PhD. How are you comparing to your old friends at AHL? <laughs> um, so I, I review my performance um, um, annually. Okay. Uh, so after the first year, the first year I was running was from um, April 2014 to April 2015, and um, you know, on, on a, looking at sharp ratio, I think they had they had a sharp ratio of four, which just goes to show you what an incredible year it was for trying to follow. <laughs> and I had a sharp ratio of two point eight. Okay. Which put me somewhere in the middle of the pack in, okay. in terms of the the CTA. So there were some other CTAs I was doing better than. Um, this year, I have done. Um, I haven't looked at the numbers in a formal sense, but um, I, I, I know I've outperformed them. Okay. Um, but um, and I, I can do a little more analysis when I get around to it. But my intuition is that is because I do have this higher allocation to non-trend following strategies. So it's probably not a fair comparison from that point of view. Sure. Um, I would expect over a long period of time that they they would outperform me, um, mainly because they do have many more markets, uh, and that that is a key. Um, you know, a key difference between a small retail investor and a large investor. That is the, the main advantage a large investor has, definitely. Sure, sure, sure. Let's jump to another topic, uh, just touch upon that briefly, and that's uh, uh, drawdowns. Uh, we've spoken about it a little bit. I have uh, a couple of questions. What is, or what's the best way of getting a gauge on a system's potential drawdown? Have you found any rule of thumb or can it only be done through you know hours of testing how do you find out what 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 to expect on on the downside so one thing you can do is to completely forget about your real data mm-hmm. and just run uh, experiments with completely artificial data mm-hmm. um, and this has a, an advantage because um, if you have some real data you just don't know whether you've been lucky or unlucky so it might be that that your you know your your drawdown was exceptionally small or exceptionally large, just just through good luck or, or bad luck, and mm. you don't know whether that's realistic to expect in the future, and that may lull you into a false sense of security, or may scare you and you you wouldn't think about training the system because it's too dangerous. 
Sure. Um, so what you can actually do is um, run um, a number of different uh, account curves with, with random data, with some sharp ratio, with some skew, whatever it is you want to do. Um, and then you can then look at the um, measure the drawdowns in each of those um, simulations. And then what you can then do is is actually look at the the distribution of the drawdowns across those simulations. So mm. that that sounds um, kind of uh, complicated, but but let's take if I give you a, a specific example. So let's say um, that you're running a system um, with a, a risk target of twenty um, percent mm-hmm. a year, um, and you expect your sharp ratio to be 0.5, which Maybe is a little bit pessimistic, um, but um, you know, even if your true sharp ratio is more than that, it's one or one and a half. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that, that over a ten-year period you might. I mean, if you look at the big CTAs over the last ten years, that's probably roughly where their sharp ratio is. Sure, sure, completely agree. Um, now, if you look at the, you can then plot the distribution, and you can. So, for example, if you plot the distribution of the average drawdown, so on any given day in any of these random simulations. Your average drawdown is about ten percent. Mm. So most of the time, you should have a drawdown of about ten percent. And if you have a drawdown that's that's um, you know the, that's ten percent sounds a lot. It's half your risk target. You know that's the kind of rule of thumb. Mm. Um, but there are also realizations, ten-year periods where your average drawdown is fifty percent. Sure. That's pretty pretty rare, but it, it could it could happen. So you need to have that in the back of your mind. Now, people probably don't worry too much about average drawdown. They worry about worst drawdown. <laughs> you know, what's the what's the kind sure. of the worst possible case? Um, so, if you look at worst drawdowns over a ten-year period, um, then the the average is around forty percent. Mm. So it's twice your risk target. Right. That's a good another good rule of thumb is that your over a ten-year period, your worst drawdown will probably be about twice your risk target. Okay. Um, so if you have a if you've been running a system for a few years and it goes down forty percent, you you probably shouldn't panic because that's kind of roughly what you should expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, if you look at the extremes, then um, you know there are runs um, where you you know you can have an eighty percent drawdown. <laughs> Which uh, I think most people the, the would start panicking on the by end that. Of the phone exactly. The, the, <laughs> you know, so that that's not impossible. And and to me, that really. Re- just, I mean, you know, it just reinforces the message that you really ought to be in a position where you you can lose all the money you're trading, right? Because it could happen. Sure. I mean, you hope it won't, but it could. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, while you'd be extremely unlucky if you've got a you've got a sharp ratio of 0.5 or higher, mm. you'd be extremely unlucky to be in that situation. But it, it could happen, and that should always be in the back of your mind. Sure. So those 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 are nice rules of thumb, and that that's easier and better than looking at a back test, which, as I said, may be biased and give you an unrealistic picture of what the, the drawdown really ought to be. Sure, 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 sure. Now, being mindful of the time, I want to jump again to uh, just uh, another section and just ask you a quick question before we end up in the last um, part of uh, part of this conversation. Now, you've clearly been part of many uh, diligence meetings, phone calls, investors wanting to ask questions about, uh, you know, the strategy uh, you were working inside and so on and so forth. Um, and, and sort of if you take that hat on, what are the things you find that investors should be asking, but they never do? Um, well, one is the question I, I touched on earlier, which is what can go wrong? Right. 
um you know what what keeps you awake at night um the the the, no one likes to hear bad news i guess which is why you know um and it also seems potentially i suppose like quite a rude question to to walk into a room and say to somebody right you know what when are you going to screw up how's it going to happen tell me all about it um but um you know really that's a very important question to ask Mm. particularly if if you've got a, a strategy that's exposed to a uh, you know a really bad risk that hasn't happened yet mm. the other the other question um i think i could probably go back to the three points i made at the beginning about over trading right. betting sure. and um overfitting i mean a lot of i mean investors will look at um risk properties and i think you know savvy investors understand things you know have a feel for for things like leverage and and um, will we'll know that if you make 40 percent in one month then Potentially, you know, you've got a high high risk, and you might be overbetting there. Mm. Um, they they kind of understand that. Um, what they don't necessarily understand so well is is the the overfitting. So, um, you yeah. know, and this obviously is is hard for someone who's coming from a different background to to you and I, and doesn't isn't familiar with it. But you know, as you said earlier, explain to me in, in terms my grandmother would understand how you how you fit your models. What's the process you go through? Sure. And if if the the researchers describe a process that it seems to involve um, a lot of iterations, then immediately alarm bells should be going off in your heads. Sure. Um, or you, you a better question is to say, tell me about this particular model, because mm. they may if you ask them how do you fit your models, they may just rattle off some corporate bs about you know about oh yes well we follow this very rigorous process blah 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 sure but if you say well how did you fit this model you know where did the idea come from um you know did did you know what what did you look at um then then it's they're going to be it's probably going to be you're going to get more honest answer out of them and you'll get a feel for whether there are some is some danger of overfitting going on there and if so how serious it is sure um and the same with over trading i think very few investors ask about trading costs um, you know, as I said, I think it really is something that most people in the industry don't pay enough attention to. Sure. No, there's no doubt that uh, transparency in these situations is very important. And, and as you mentioned in your book, um, that goes also for politics. Anyways, uh, the last section, Rob, we're almost there. General and fun. And uh, I'm just going to pick a couple of uh, ones I think could be relevant for our conversation today because we've clearly touched upon a lot of the the technical stuff. You've written a book, but if you couldn't recommend that, which other book would you recommend for someone who wants to get into this uh, business or want to learn to understand it better? Is there any book that you read that sort of stands out to you? Um, yeah, so my, my book wouldn't be the first book you'd read, I think, if you were interested in, in, the, in the systematic training business. So um, there is a book I read myself um, about 15 years ago before I knew what systematic trading was, um, and it's called The Predictors. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there was, I don't know if you've heard of Doyne Farmer. He's in uh, something called Econophysics. Okay. And he was one of the inventors of uh, chaos theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he, in his youth, he, he did fun things like trying to build a, uh, a wearable, what we would now call wearable tech, um, a computer that, that would predict where a roulette wheel would land. All right, okay. Um, land and, and, you know, try and make some money out of that. But sure. the technology wasn't sufficiently advanced, and I believe there were some electric shocks. 
And then he moved on and ended up um, founding a, a hedge fund, which um, was doing systematic trading. And this was in the, the early 90s. And it's a very well-written book. It's not technical. And okay. uh, I, I was one, read this book and thought, this is what I want to do. Okay. Um, and it gets across really the feel for, you know, how how you do this job and the things you have to worry about. And there's some great passages in there about um, the, the little anecdotes that really get across you know, what overfitting is. I mean, the, the, the phrase is never used in the book, but you really get the feel for what it is and uh, and how you have to worry about execution costs. And, um, and at the time, I just thought this is a, a really interesting book, a really readable book. And you know, I just find it fascinating. So. Sure, sure, sure. And in in your and 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 I'm not entirely sure which career I would uh, because you've kind of had a couple of different careers. You could say um, so. So you can relate the question to 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 what you want. But what would you say has been the biggest failure on your side, and and what did you learn from it? And I use the word failure loosely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I um, think you've done pretty well. So. Uh, um, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, so um, if I think about when I was working at AHL, um, you know, there were a number of times when I, I did things that I would I would no longer do now. Um, it's 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 quite hard to pick out um, the biggest one um, <laughs> <laughs> because there there have there have been so many that. Um, You know, there, there've been this, the um, yeah. I'm, I'm perhaps I've been lucky. I've never had a kind of single kind of blow up or sure. disaster, if you like, that that sort of really knocked me back. I've had a, a long series of small disasters, sure. um, which have left me um, still standing and able to learn from them without being being completely knocked down. So, I mean, arguably, you, you could say that that you know, um, when I left um, Bar Barclays for I was uh, trading, uh, that was that was a failure arguably, because I, I failed at doing the job that I've been hired to do um, in the sense that AI. I felt it was uh, not what I was any good at. Sure. Uh, and uh, really from that, I, I, I learned um, that trading is not what I, I'm, I can't trade. Sure. You know, discretionary trading is not something I can do. And um, most people, um, a lot of people think they can do it. I don't think they can either. But no. I was fortunate enough to learn a lesson quite early on. So. Sure. No, that that's an important one. That's an important one for sure. Now you told us a, an interesting fact about yourself, which I had no idea about your your uh, stellar sailing uh, <laughs> career. Long time ago. Long time ago, you say. But uh, can you tell me a fun fact about yourself? Something that even people who know you, and let's maybe uh, exclude your your wife and and, <laughs> and children here, but people who who may even know you don't know about you. Is there anything? Is there a different side to Rob Carver that uh, <laughs> that uh, we don't know about? Um, I have um, a real addiction to trashy television. Okay. <laughs> can you uh, recommend? Can you recommend any? <laughs> um, particularly, um, there's um, what I would call um, trashy business programs. Okay. Uh, so um, I mean, there's a there's a couple there's a couple I mentioned in this in the, the run in this country. Um, one is The Apprentice, which I think is inter international now. Sure. I know there's a US version which had uh, Mr. Trump. Yeah, interesting, it's, isn't it? Yeah. You know, a um, but this this program is absolutely appalling because it, it is completely unlike. Uh, you know, it's completely. You would not run a business the way this program works. Sure. Uh, it encourages people to behave in ways that are incredibly bad, but mm. great television. Mm. Um, and um, this this I don't know why I enjoy watching it. I don't know whether it's Schadenfreude because. 
I'm thinking, gosh, I'm so glad I'm not like these people. Right. And never had to put myself through this or, or, or what. But um, yeah, and it, it's um, it's compelling stuff. Um, sure. And then there's another program called Dragon's Den in which people have, which perhaps isn't so well known outside sure. of the UK, where people have to pitch ideas to some venture capitalists. Yeah. Um, and again, it is, it's a complete, it's slightly more realistic than The Apprentice, but it is a bit of a... Uh, a farcical representation of how the, the real world of business works. Sure. Um, yeah. Of course, the irony is if there was a highly realistic program about business, it would be incredibly dull and I wouldn't want to watch it either. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I understand why these programs are made. Exactly, exactly. I, I, hate, I hate them and I hate myself for loving them so much. So there we go. Yeah, Dragon's Den in the US, they call it the Shark Tank. So, ah, uh, okay. that's, so it is that's what it is. It's already there. Now, you mentioned you have children. And uh, I was curious to know if you could choose only one of your own skills to pass on to your children, what what would that be and, and, and why? I mean, if I was to choose an, an attribute rather than a skill, okay. it would be um, that I'm a very optimistic person. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's allowed. Um, um, I I always, um, you know, think, and I, I also never, never ever look back and, and regret anything that's happened in the past. Sure. Um, so um, I think those two things for me at least go together. So um, that makes a life... Um, you know, more more fun and more tolerable, and I think that's probably of more use than than saying, "Oh, I wish my kids were you know as as good at maths as I am." Not that I'm that good at maths, but, you know, or uh, um, had uh... sailing perhaps. <laughs> Apparently, that seems to be a good uh... <laughs> perhaps. But, perhaps. But yeah, that would be the the attribute I'd like. That's what I'd like to pass on to them, if nothing else. Definitely. No, that's important. Absolutely. Now we're coming to an end, Rob. Um, I have one particular question left um i asked earlier about what investors were missing out when they talked to people like yourself what they should be asking so i'm going to turn it always on myself at the very end and say you know was there anything today that i missed i want to make sure i give justice to you and and and, and your book so so uh, is there anything you want to bring up to the at the end here that i failed to to ask you today um i'm just going to be really cheeky and and just plug the book some more and say that if you go to www.systematictrading.org then you can find out more about it and uh, there's also a link to my blog uh, a link to the publisher's page where you can you can buy it if you want to sure no absolutely and i was going to absolutely mention that and i'll probably mention that a, a bit later as we wrap up i want to thank uh urex the exchange for sponsoring today's episode uh, and as many of you listeners today uh, will know, Yurx uh, is a great place to to trade, especially if you're a systematic trader, because there's quite a lot of liquidity in most of, of their contracts. And um, uh, they've just launched a mini DAX future, which is a really, really interesting contract because the, the DAX is a bit large for retail traders at the moment. So that's, okay. that's a little plug for that. Well, thanks very much for that, because I, I was not aware of that. I'm sure they'll be happy to to hear us discuss <laughs> that and, and promote that. Uh, from my side, I also want to mention to uh, to our listeners that it might be a good idea to go to your smartphones and activate the subscribe button, because uh, I've noticed that some of these uh, feeds on the podcast uh, are no longer automatically updating the media player. So if you wouldn't mind, just uh, pick up your smartphone and, and make sure you are subscribed to the to the podcast and and that really leaves me to to thank you rob um this has been 
a great conversation on a, on a Saturday morning, uh, a true masterclass in systematic trading, which I really appreciate. And I, I also appreciate your willingness to share your your insights and, and your views in, in this field. And the book, the book, of course, is Systematic Trading, as Rob mentioned. And, and I suggest you grab a copy or two of that. And of course, uh, the listeners can also find all the details of today's conversation in the show notes on toptradersonplug.com. So, Rob, I hope we can connect at a later date and get an update on your great work. I really appreciate your time and what you've done. So thank you ever so much. Thank you very much, Niels. It's been uh, great fun. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.